familiar passage to many, a passage to King David about uh, his son who would reign when he was gone. Uh, this is God's word. It is worthy of our full and our undivided attention. So let us give that attention uh, now as we hear our God's word read. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with the people of Israel. Did I, ever, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from that time, from, that, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask that he would bless our time uh, that we spend in it this morning. Let us pray. Oh God, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than ours. And your thoughts higher than our thoughts. We are here this morning because we want to know you. We want to know your truth and we want to know your ways. So we ask that you would teach them to us and guide us in them. Teach us to know your ways and to seek after them with all our hearts and with all of our minds and with all of our strength. We ask that you do even this as we draw near to you in your word. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated.
there's no shortage of names and titles for Jesus when you read through the New Testament. I'm sure you recognize some of them. Uh, titles like Son of God, or Son of Man, or the Christ, or the Lord, and so on. And each title, each name means something, uh, tells us something unique about who Jesus is and what his mission is. And one of those uh, titles that we saw in our study through the book of Luke, when we came to chapter 18, he met a blind man whom Matthew tells us was named Bartimaeus. I don't know if you remember, but Bartimaeus called him Son of David. Son of David. And it's not the first time that that title is used of Jesus in the New Testament, uh, Matthew's Gospel opens with it. Maybe you remember the first line of Matthew's Gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, it's that title that is uh, intri intriguing to us this morning um, because the people in Israel knew that the Messiah had to be a descendant of King David in order so that he, he could be king over them. And that expectation that he would be a descendant, the son of David, came from our passage this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, and each year at Christmas, we have been looking at Old Testament passages that taught the people uh, of Israel what to expect in the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world, what to look for. And in order to do that, we have been, for uh, the past many years, uh, been looking at uh, birth narratives and prophecies in the Old Testament. And there are a lot of these. Um, and they're not just there so that we would know how uh, Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses were born. What God is doing, why these are recorded in Scripture, is because God is telling us his story through their story. Each one of these uh, episodes is meant to teach us something about the coming Messiah. He teaches us about Jesus through all of these narratives uh, in the Old Testament. And so this year, and Lord willing, next year, that's why it says part one, uh, we'll be looking at King David and his son. So if you really want to know what happens next, come back next year uh, and, and we'll, we'll keep going. Uh, but this morning, what we want to do is listen to God's promise to David that he would bring a kingdom of salvation through the birth of a son to David's house. And as, as we do that, what we'll see is this. Jesus came into this world veiled in weakness, but through that weakness brought an eternal kingdom of glory. Through that weakness, he actually brings a kingdom of glory. But you have to know what to look for in order to see that. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. Uh, David is one of the better known figures in the Old Testament. Much of 1st and 2nd Samuel record his life in great detail. Uh, we know of his humble beginnings. A uh, shepherd boy, uh, born to the house of Jesse. Uh, we grieve 
as we read chapter after chapter about the unjust persecution of David at the hand of his king, Saul, whom he had done nothing but try to help. We know about David's tragic moral failure with Bathsheba and his wicked attempt to, to cover it up through having her husband killed. And we know about Nathan the prophet's heroic confrontation of, of the most powerful man on earth and how the Lord used that to bring the king to repentance. We know about David's failure to deal with his son Absalom and how that failure brought strife and hardship into David's home for the remainder of his life. And so as we, as we read our passage today, one of the first questions that would be natural to ask is where exactly does this fall in David's up and down life? Our passage comes in that really, really short period of peace. In between the death of King Saul and prior uh, to the, the sin with Bathsheba. There's just a few chapters where David has relief from persecution before his moral failure. It's in this time of peace and rest and prosperity and success that we find our passage. These are the sweet spot. These, these few chapters are sort of the sweet spot in David's life that is otherwise tumultuous. We find David, he's on the throne. He's been uh, anointed king. He is loved and adored by the people. And he has built himself a beautiful palace, uh, the envy of all the other kings. And from there, he, he is reigning in this, this spectacular palace, which inspires awe and, and respect. Things are good. Finally for David, after years and years of hiding in caves and hiding among the Philistines, things are finally good. And they're so good, in fact, that uh, David starts to feel uh, a bit... Uh, guilty and, and awkward. After all, he's in this glorious palace and he's living this life of luxury and ease and comfort. And he looks and he sees the tabernacle, that tent constructed under Moses in the wilderness, which has served as God's dwelling place for, for now 400 years. And he begins to feel a little sheepish. And even sorry for God. He begins to pity God. After all, David is in this beautiful house. And just down the street, his God is living in a tent. And so he goes to the prophet Nathan. And he shares his concern. He presents his plan. He's going to make things right. He's going to build a more permanent house for his God. Something beautiful. Something glorious. Something befitting and worthy of his God. <laughs> David to the rescue. And I think we get it. How often do we hear about the birth of Jesus in a lowly cattle stall and feel the same way David feels here. We think, oh, poor Jesus. That's not fair. That's not right. He deserves so much more. And, and if only I was there. 
If only I could have provided him a room, something more suitable for the king. You see, David's instincts are natural. We understand them. The prophet understood them. And he gave David the green light. He said, go ahead, go, do what your heart desires. But that night, that very night, God came to Nathan and he puts a hold to David's plans. And the reason will become clear when you get to 1 Chronicles 28. Uh, the, the specific reason given was that David was uh, a man of war. He, his life was characterized by war, by battle and fighting. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, God is a warrior. He fights battles. He protects his people. And David was meant to be a reflection of that aspect of God's character to his people. But the thing was, it epitomized David's legacy. From Goliath to serving in Saul's army as a general, this is what the songs about David were about. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This is his reputation. This is his legacy. This is what people will remember. And that's the reason God gave for saying David would not be the one to build him a permanent house, his temple. And I think we're honest, that strikes us as a little bit counterintuitive. <laughs> when we think about leaders, isn't that exactly the kind we're looking for? Someone like David? Someone who can protect us, drive fear and terror into the hearts of our enemies. We think if there's any leader in Israel's history who should be given this privilege, isn't it David? I mean, this passage is about God's kingdom and God's king. And isn't a strong king, a, a strong protector, exactly what we want better qualified a more natural pick than David and remember this is before Bathsheba this is before Absalom this is David at his brightest moment you see we all bring our assumptions into every conversation every discussion and that's no less true when we think about what a king or, or really any leader should be because David is the kind of king we want. A warrior, a fighter, someone who gets things done. That's what we want. That's what we gravitate toward. That's the kind of leader whose, whose books we buy, whose conferences we attend. But this isn't the first time in Israel's history they've had a king like that. Because that's exactly what everyone appreciated about David's predecessor, Saul. Saul was a head taller than everyone else. He was big. He was strong. He was handsome. He was the kind of leader people could get behind because their enemies would fear him. And even though David wasn't tall, he proved to be just as formidable, even more so a warrior as King Saul was. 
what did God tell his people when they wanted a king like that the first time? He said, man looks to the outside, but our God looks to the heart. But really, it's not just that David was a man of war that keeps him from being the one. It's also that David has completely misread the situation. And in doing so, he has misjudged his God. Look at what God says in verse 7. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, this begins with David assuming that God is discontent to live in a tent. And God turns to David and says, where did you get that idea? Because it certainly wasn't from me. You see, to us, a palace equals glory. And so it's desirable because we crave glory. Living in a tent isn't an honor. It's a sign of poverty. It's a sign of transience. We don't use the term tent cities as, as, as something desirable. And so for us, given the choice between a palace and a tent, most of us would choose a palace every time without hesitation, unless, of course, we just want to go camping. <laughs> but then we want to come home. And we assume, like David did, that if God were given the chance, God were given the choice, that he would choose a palace too, and we assume that because it's what we would do. In other words, we, make, we, we remake God in our own image, and we're shocked when God asks us why we would think that of him. We just look, but, because, but it's a tent. <laughs> it's a palace. We think it's obvious. But really, if we, if we get behind it, what it is is that we fear discomfort. We fear humiliation. And so anytime hardship comes, what we want to do is run. We, we want to get around it. We want to get through it as quickly as possible with as little discomfort as possible. But often, if we, if we acknowledge reality, it's, it's this. The greatest rewards often require the greatest sacrifice. Which means that true glory can only follow significant discomfort. And that means that in the long run, if we short-circuit hard times, we might end up settling for an inferior glory because we chose the easy road. I'm going to say that again. We could end up with a far smaller, inferior reward and glory if we choose the easy road. Because we're all tempted to look for peace. We're all tempted to look for comfort. And we're all tempted to look for a reward before it's time.
And that's foolish. It's foolish because it's short-sighted. And as we heard in our, our declaration of pardon this morning, our God is no fool. In the world's eyes, he might be. But he is no fool because he is willing to take the long road for the greater reward, the greater glory. He seeks beauty, but only in its time. And so there isn't an ounce of discontentment in our God as he dwells in a tent because the time for glory has not yet come. And he's even offended at the idea that that time would be moved up. But our God's not done correcting David because it's not just a problem of timing. There's another problem. You see, David sees himself, at least to some extent, as rescuing his God. And so in verses 9 through 11, God reminds David of how things really are. <laughs> Verse 9, I will cut off your enemies. Again in verse 9, I will make your name great. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for worship. Verse 11, I will give you rest. And again in verse 11, I, David, will be the one to give you rest or, or build your house, not the other way around. You see, part of the problem is that David thought he could do these things for the Lord when really it was the Lord who must do these things for David. And so God goes on in verse 12 and says he will do all of this through David's son, his offspring, a son who will be born to David. Now, can you imagine how humbling that would be to hear? I mean, maybe the kids in our congregation don't get it, but the dads do. <laughs> because this isn't our way. In our minds, dads provide for their sons, not the other way around. But God is telling David, the great and mighty David, that he will receive these blessings through his son. The rest from the enemies, the establishment of an eternal kingdom, uh, the building of a permanent house for God, all of these will come through David's yet-to-be-born son. And then God says, and David, get this. My relationship with him will be so unique that I will treat him as if he were my very own son. He will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. I, I will treat him like he was the very son of heaven. God would discipline him as a, as a father disciplines his son, even with the rod of discipline, verse 14. And as we read on through 2 Samuel, we see that it's through Solomon that, that these promises uh, find their fulfillment and are kept. Uh, in, in, under Solomon, Israel experienced peace from all their enemies, as God promised. Uh, under, under Solomon, the temple, a permanent temple, was built, which was spectacular, an absolute visual marvel. At its dedication, Samuel looks back to our passage and his, and his promises to, his, to King David in them. And Solomon says, our God has kept his promises to my father. These things have been realized. 
everything the people were taught to expect in 2 Samuel 7 is, is realized in, Sam, in uh, Solomon. But, but there's even more under King Solomon than we see in our passage. There are some other unexpected blessings as well. Because as, as they experienced peace from all their enemies, they were confronted with a very uncomfortable reality that there was a, a very real threat from within their borders. See, David didn't really have to deal with too much trouble on the inside. He spent most of his time securing the borders, fighting uh, the Philistines and others. He was focused on the sin out there. But no sooner did Solomon become king and take the throne than he was confronted with the ugly truth that the greatest threat Israel faced might actually be the one within. David was known for his warrior's strength and his ability to deal with outside threats, but Solomon was known for his wisdom and the ability to deal with sin inside of Israel. That's what they needed. Israel would devour themselves without a wise king. And that's not just true for God's people corporately, is it? The biggest threat each of us faces is not the threat outside of us, but the sin in our own hearts. We think we want a David, but what we need is a Solomon who can deal with the sin within. If all we had was someone who could fight those outside threats, deal with our enemies, our own sin would go undealt with, untreated, and unconquered. And so what we really need is a king who knows how to fight an entirely different kind of battle. And that means that even Solomon couldn't really be the king we needed. Because Solomon had his own sin. And so we needed a greater king. One greater even than Solomon. A greater savior. Someone even wiser than Solomon. Able to defeat our greatest enemy. The sin within our own hearts. What we need is a king who's less like David and even less like Solomon and more like God, one who isn't ashamed to live in a tent if that's the road to greater glory. What we need is, is, a, is a king who can build an even better house, a better temple than the one Solomon built, one who could truly inherit and be worthy of ruling over an imperishable kingdom that could never pass away. What we needed was one who was willing to bear the rod of discipline and endure the stripes of the sons of man if that was what was required to bring all of this about. We needed a son of David, but one greater even than Solomon. And so is it any wonder that when Jesus came, they said, Aha, the son of David that we've all been waiting for. They saw him, and in him they saw all that had been promised, all that they needed, everything that even Solomon was unable to be. 
When Jesus came into this world, he, he did not come as we would. He did not come as we might expect. He did not come in visible glory and comfort. In fact, do you remember how John puts it in his gospel? And he became flesh, and literally he tabernacled. He dwelt in his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of God the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation, God becoming man and entering into this world to dwell with us is described as dwelling in a tent. And what's our temptation? What do we naturally think? We think, that's not right. We must rescue him. We must fix this. But it shouldn't surprise us. It's just who God has always revealed himself to be. Isn't that what he told David? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And did I speak a word saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? As Jesus came into this world, born in a cattle stall, he was simply doing what he has always done in this world taken the hard and lowly road to serve his people for a greater glory to come. And that humble lodging defined Jesus' entire time on earth. The Son of Man has no home, no place to rest his head. If he was really the God of Israel as he claimed to be, could we imagine any other place for him to be born but in a lowly, humble manger? Not if he's the God of David. Not if he's David's greater son. Not if he came to fulfill all the promises in 2 Samuel 7. He knows that the greatest glory always comes at the end of the hardest road. And that any glory obtained before its time is always an inferior glory. He knows that any king worthy of God's eternal king knows and accepts this. And that's exactly what we find in Jesus. He, not Solomon, is a son to God and God a father to him. And he had no sin for which to be disciplined, but that did not stop him from suffering the rod and the stripes of men. Because suffering for our sin was the only way to save us from our greatest enemy our own sin. It's in him alone that we find rest from our enemies. And it's him, in him alone that we find the king that we need and a kingdom which cannot perish. And yet is eternal because it is not of this world. See, even the temple that Solomon built could not truly be the house of God. In the grand scheme of things... Bricks and mortar are really, even gold, are really just a small step above uh, leather and canvas and fabric. God's design has always been 
for a better temple, a living temple built out of living stones, you and me. Peter says it this way, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, the world wants an impressive king. One who is not willing to be humbled and humiliated. They want one who lives in a glorious palace, not one who is willing to live for 400 years in an old tent. And so for them, Jesus is ridiculous. He's foolish. He's laughable. Anything but kingly. And so he becomes a stumbling block to their faith. But for us, we see the God who told David no. Who said that he is content to live in a tent because he is interested in something far greater than we could ever imagine. Who is now, even now, building himself a house more glorious than Solomon could have ever dreamed of if he had a million years to design it. You want to see what that temple looks like? Look to your right and to your left and look in a mirror because we, beloved, are that temple. We are the living stones. And our God has been pleased to call us his home. Like David, we're all tempted to look for visible glory in our pursuit of God and his kingdom. But in doing so, we could so easily miss our king and what he is doing. And so to keep us focused on who he is and what he's doing, our Lord has given us a reminder this morning. To help train our eyes to see our king where the world might miss him. In the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, we have elements that are by design intentionally meager. The Bible tells us this isn't for filling your bellies. The Bible says if you're hungry, eat at home. That's not what this is about. This is supposed to be small. The world says, what kind of meal sends you home hungry? The elements aren't meant to be impressive in and of themselves, at least as the world sees impressiveness. But for those who have the eyes of faith, in them we see reminders that our Savior King, the Son of God, the Son of Heaven, took on flesh and blood and dwelt in a tent among us. And he was willing to live in that tent of a human body to accomplish something far greater and more glorious than any earthly building could ever be. He came to accomplish our salvation and deliver us from sin and death. He was willing to suffer and to bleed and to die so that he might share his kingdom with us. 
And so as we come to this table, we see a king worthy of our worship. We see one stronger than David. We see one wiser than Solomon. We see Jesus Christ, David's son, the son of God, our king and our savior. So I'd like to ask Pastor Isaac and the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God uh, this morning. Well, please join me in prayer. Our gracious God, we confess that we often remake you in our own image. We think that you would do what we would do. And so we're surprised when you do something totally, completely different, totally and completely selfless. But we thank you. We thank you that you weren't ashamed to live in a tent in Jerusalem or in the tent of human flesh in Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, and our only hope of salvation. So we ask that you would give us more than gratitude, give us heavenly wisdom that is willing to walk the hard road while we await the greater glory. Help us to love and to serve as Jesus has loved and served. We thank you and we praise you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like us. Amen.